Back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 26 is where we'll be today if you want to turn there with me. Slowly but surely, I'm making my way through this book. When I say slowly, I think this is year five. All right, Genesis chapter 26. Last time I preached out of Genesis, which would have been in January, so if you don't remember, that's okay. We're going to do a little cover. We're going to cover a little bit of review. Last time I preached out of Genesis, we covered the first 12 verses of Genesis chapter 26, and I'll be honest with you, that passage of Scripture is so encouraging and edifying, I'm really tempted to preach the whole passage to you again. I'm going to try not to, but I do want to bring out the salient points in case you missed that one. So uh, let's pray and then we will review kind of what we covered last time and then we're going to try to get this chapter finished out today as well. Let's pray. Lord, we pray you would show us today great things from your word. We pray you'd use me, Lord, as a mouthpiece today to encourage and edify your people through the truth of your word. Not by my words, Lord. Let this exegesis be accurate to your word and to your spirit. May it magnify the truth of your word. May all that's said and done today bring glory and honor to you. For you alone are worthy of it. It's in Jesus' name we ask. And all God's people said, Amen. So last time I preached from Genesis, which was months ago now, we exposited the first 12 verses. Let's review what we covered. And before we jump into that, I want to give kind of a background. The first thing that we said was right off the bat in Genesis chapter 26, we see there's a famine. And people in that time thought about bad situations very similar to how we are tempted to think about bad situations. Judaism which is a false gospel or no God, it's anti-gospel. Judaism, like any other anti-Christian religion, is works-based. Every other religion is works-based. How do you get right with God? Well, you do enough good things that you earn His favor or you earn His love. If there's any place in the Old Testament that puts this that, that thinking to rest, it's these 12 verses. Because what we're going to see is... Number one, we're going to see Isaac is in a famine that is not because of his sin. You understand, sometimes you're going to go through trials in life because of your own sin. You've done that? Yes, I'll guarantee you've done that. If, you're very, if you, you've lived long enough, you've done that. You've gone through a bad time or a trial in your life that's basically self-created. Are you with me here? I call it the Frankenstein paradigm, right? This is a monster of your own making. But what we're going to see today is that's not always the case. Sometimes you go through trials that are not of your making. Sometimes you go through trials that are others making. Sometimes you go through trials that are just because you're living in a sin-cursed world. You might say Adam's making. Uh, I'll, I'll never forget. Probably about a year ago now, my daughter was running around outside and stepped on a sticker. Uh, she was not very happy about that, of course, you know. You're a dad and your daughter, you know, your, your son like chops his arm off and you're like, rub some dirt on it. Your daughter, you know, like scuffs her toe. You're like, oh, come here. It's okay. Daddy's here, right? But uh, what cracked me up was I'm tending to her foot and she's kind of crying. And she's like, dad, 
why did Adam have to sin? <laughs> it just cracked me up. <laughs> you're putting the dots together. Yeah, you're right. Thistles and thorns. and Yeah. So, sometimes the trial that you're going through is simply because you live in a cursed world. However, I want to point something out to you. Sometimes you're in a trial because God sent you through that trial. And I, I, I hate saying it this way, but it's true. I think sometimes we waste our trials. And here's what I mean by that. Sometimes God is going to drag you through a trial because he has work for you to do in that trial. And we're such selfish and so solipsistic, such self-centered beings that we get in the midst of the trial. And the only thing we can think about is how do I get out of this? How do I escape this? How do I get out of this trial? How do I get out of this tough time? And we miss that there's a work in this that God has set up for us specifically because of this trial. You know, a lot of times when you're going through a trial, other people are too. You know, when other people are going through trials, sometimes they can be the proud, arrogant God-hater, and all of a sudden, they got a little of the starch out of their pants, enough that they'll listen. And if you can get your mind off of your own discomfort, your own displeasure, or your own suffering, if you will, you can focus on doing the work. I'll give you an example. A few years ago, I finished... I started a college football injury by tearing my pectoral, and a few years ago, three or four years ago now, I completed the process in a, in a judo practice and tore it all the way off my arm, right? And they had to go back in and literally drill holes through me and put metal in my arm and reattach it, and it was a fun time, right? It was it was not one of my favorite experiences, and so, you know, I'm... I'm literally because, you know, I'm feeling sorry for myself. You know, woe is me. Why, why did I have to go through this? God, this is, this is, this is going to set me back in like every area. I've got one arm, you know, like how can I do chores? You know, you're trying to sling, remember feeding cattle, right? You're like, you sling the, you know, up on your over, other shoulder, you, you know, drop it into the bunk and open this thing up and dump it up. And I'm thinking, how am I going to do all this work? And I, so anyway, long story short is I get to the, physical therapist place and i'm literally still trying to think like what are you doing in this lord and i realized i started talking to my physical therapist and i realized this guy doesn't know the gospel but he's open to hear it so while he's wrenching on me like putting me through pain so that i can move my arm again we had some very productive talks about christ and the gospel and i realized wow maybe in this trial God is opening a door for me to talk to a guy that I would never have seen before, I would never have interacted with before. And here I've been wasting it because I'm so self-centered, I'm so focused on my own pain, I just missed that. But we're going to see that. I want to I remind you what First Peter says. It says this, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. You've been grieved by trials. Why? Here's what First Peter says. Here's why the trial happens. So that the genuineness of your faith might be found. That's interesting, isn't it? So that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, might be found to the praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Trials are going to tell you about your faith. 
Peter tells us that God will allow us to be grieved by various trials so the genuineness of our faith can be found. And by the way, it's not because he doesn't know what the genuineness of your faith is. Just in case you're wondering, I've heard that preached before. God wants to see what's really in there. God already knows what's really in there. He doesn't need to see. You know who doesn't know what's really in there? Us. It's very easy for us to have an inflated sense of our own faith, of our own walk, our own maturity. And then we get in the trial and we see what it really looks like, don't we? It's easy. It's very tempting for me to think, well, I've, you know, I'm this mature Christian, got it all together. Well, just, just wait. Get me tired for three or four days. Get me really annoyed. Then see what comes out, right? I have a tendency to be a little snappy. You might notice, my students could probably tell you that. <laughs> had a student come in the other day, I was like, man, I've got to repent. Student comes in, she's telling me a joke. And I'm like, what are you doing? She's like, I'm just testing, just testing, seeing where you're at today. I'm like, is it that bad? Am I, am I like this, am I snappy? She's like, ah, it's in the school, you know, everybody's kind of stressed, I just got to check it out. I'm like, okay. I need to repent, I guess. So the long story short, though, is this. God will send you through trials. We don't like to think that way. We think if a trial comes in our life, the devil did it, boy. Well, the devil's doing this in my life, and I've got to pray it out. Or if you're a word of faith, speak it out. Not always. (laughs) You may be in this trial because God told you to be in this trial. That's what he did to Isaac. Let's read about it, and we'll go on. Chapter 26, now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. In other words, this is not the first time this has happened. There was a famine in the land, and Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I'll tell you. In other words, don't go to Egypt, stay in the promised land. Think about this if you're Isaac. Uh, Lord, we got a famine in the promised land. The way that this always happened, okay? When, when you had famine in Canaan, you knew Egypt had food. They have the Nile River running through, right? They can cut channels. They can irrigate because of the river. They still have grain, even when there's nothing up in Canaan. And Abraham, we saw that. We, we're going to see that throughout the rest of Genesis. That's very, very common. If there's famine in Canaan, we go down to Egypt and buy grain. That's just kind of the way it is. So he's on his way. That's why he's here. He's like halfway on the journey going down to Egypt. And God tells him, I don't want you to go. Lord, there's a famine. There's no grain. There's no bread. And God says, yep, I want you to stay. There's no grain. There's no bread. And you see this, like, I'm telling you, this would be my conversation with the Lord. Like, Lord, obviously you missed that really important part about the famine. God tells him to stay in the trial. Could you do that? I would be very tempted to, like, justify that away. I'm talking about, I would be very tempted to have a backup plan. He didn't. And to his credit, he stayed, although he kind of half obeyed because he stayed, but he didn't go back. 
right? So he stayed, but he stayed there. And just in case God changed his mind, we're halfway, right? Sometimes God will use trials to mature you, grow you, reach others with the gospel. And so he tells you, stay where you're at. I'm working. Mm, I don't like that, Lord. This is not good for my own personal comfort here, okay? What we're going to find out in Genesis 26, by the way, Genesis 26 is the only chapter of Scripture that follows the life of Isaac. Um, He's kind of a quiet man, and he's kind of a quiet man in Scripture. And what we're going to find out is that his faith walk is kind of a mixed bag. He'll have these great successes, and then he'll have these failures. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) Sound a lot like you? You can tell me you're a spiritual giant if you want to. I mean, I won't believe you, but you can tell me. I'll pat you on the back, try to help you, you know, stroke your ego, but I'm, I'm not going to believe you. No, your faith walk's a mixed bag, too. You know why? You will have successes in your faith walk. Because it's he that's within you who's working and willing to his own good pleasure. And he who began this work in you will complete it. And because Christ is working in you, you will have victories. Those victories are being empowered by his spirit. It is inevitable. He will power you on to victory. However, I have bad news for you. When you got born again, you got a new nature. You got Christ in you. But your flesh nature did not leave. You have a war now. You still have flesh. You will not get rid of your sin nature until you die. And go to heaven. That's called glorification. You will not be glorified until after you die. You will fight these fleshly sinful urges all of your life. And because of that, it is also, I'm also guaranteeing you on some level, you will have failures as well. You will do your utmost best to serve the Lord in a manner that honors Him, in a manner that glorifies Him. And even in that, you're still going to fail Him from time to time. You're going to. I'm not saying you're going to try to. If if you try to, if you don't care whether your life honors God, you want to, you don't care about sin, then I I have to question whether you're actually uh, really a a Christian or not. Okay, but if you really are a born again believer, if you truly are a Christian, then you want to honor Christ. And yet, even in that, in your best efforts, you will fail Him. And it will crush you. And you're going to see that with Isaac. To me, this is, if I think about it much, it will break me down, so I'm trying not to think about it. But the truth of the matter is, God is faithful. He's faithful when we are faithful, and he's faithful when we're failures. And that's one of the greatest hopes in all of Scripture. Hebrews tells us he's not ashamed That's going to break me down. Hebrews tells us he's not ashamed to be called our God. If I were God, there would be times when I would be ashamed to be called the God or Father of Paul Wilson. Because there's times that I fail that are shameful. I think about it the next day or the next week and I think... Where, where was my spiritual maturity at? And yet, he's a good father, isn't he? 
I had to have this talk with my kids one one night. It, oh. We do judo as a family. And so my kids are both there, and they have randori matches at the end of their judo practice. One of them won, one of them lost. And so... The question basically was, you know, am I okay? Did I do good? Of course. Well, I didn't win. I don't care. I'm not more proud of you if you're a great judoka. I don't care if you're ever in an Olympic match. You're my son. You're my daughter. I love you regardless of how you perform. Your performance does not affect that. And I know this sounds stupid, this is crazy, but it's like as I'm driving down the road, I'm realizing it's the same way with the Lord. And we're very, very tempted to think that the Lord's care and love for us is so dependent on our performance. And it's not. And we learn that. You know where we learn that? We learn that by living in the sin-cursed world where everybody else's love for us is very much dictated on our performance. If you're a born-again Christian, you will have spiritual victories because Christ is at work in you. But you're also going to have spiritual failures. You're going to swing for the fences for the Lord. I hope you have the, the courage to take risks, to take big risks and swing big for the Lord. Sometimes you're going to hit a home run, and it's because the Lord is in it, and he's powering this thing. You know what else? Sometimes you're going to strike out. Sometimes you're going to fall flat on your face. And here's the good news. God is still faithful regardless. He's faithful to his people in spite of them, not because of them. He's not faithful to you because you're so good for him and you do such good work for him. And you've worked so hard with your house. We went to a funeral. And the, the song that was playing was basically a glorification of man. Look at my life, Lord. Is it enough? Is it enough? And I, Justin was there. And I looked over at Justin. And I was like, no, it's not enough. Of course it's not. His blessings on your life, his goodness to you, is not because of you. Who's it because of? Christ. He is the true Israel. He's the one. Because you're in Christ, you are blessed by God. Period. It is not because of all the great stuff you've done for him. Look at me. I'm such a great Christian. I've done these wonderful works for God. And therefore, he's giving me what I'm due. If he gave you what you were due, you would have cursed, death, and hell. That's what you're due. Now, instead, he loves you on behalf of Christ. You are in his son. You did not earn his blessings, and you never will. He's not doling out blessings to you in some sort of spiritual quid pro quo. Oh, you've done this, you've scratched my back, so therefore I'll scratch yours. No. He's doling out the blessings because you're in Christ. You didn't earn it, Christ did. Christ is the true Israel that God promises. Christ is the true Israel that blesses the nations. Christ is the promised seed, singular. Christ is the true heir of Abraham. 
I don't want to get off into an entire sermon about the true Israel, the true seed, the true people of God. Let's get back to the topic at hand. There was a famine in the land. Notice that even in the promised land, there was a famine and trial. This is the promised land. The land of milk and honey, remember? Well, now it's the land of famine. It's the promised land. And this is God's promised child. This is Isaac. He's the promised child. He's living in God's promised land. And yet he's still going through trial. He's still going through a famine. Why would God do that? For the glory of his name and for the good of his people. That's why. To escape the famine, he's heading south toward Egypt. God tells him, nope, don't go there. Stay. And so he does. Let's move on. The Lord appeared to him and said, don't go down to Egypt. This is verse 2. Live in the land of which I'll tell you. Dwell, that is to say, stay. Dwell in this land and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I give all these lands. And I'll perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. God is telling him, stay here where there's a famine, where there's no wheat, where there's no bread, and I'm going to be your provision. Would that take a little bit of trust? Yeah, that's when you see how much you trust the Lord, when he's all you have. Stay here, and I'm going to perform to you the oath I swore. Basically, son, stay here. Trust me and uh, watch me work. That takes some faith. I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of the heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands. Now notice something. Those promises are dependent on Isaac and his wife staying alive. And he says this. I'll give to your descendants all these lands and in your seed, singular, seed, who is that seed? Christ, yes, the New Testament tells us that seed is Christ. All the nations of the earth will be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes and my laws. Therefore, Isaac dwelt in Gerar. And the Lord appeared to Isaac and essentially told him not to run away, right? Which we already said. Verse 7, and the men of the place asked about his wife, and he said, she's my sister. Now notice this. God just appeared to him and said, don't worry, I'm going to take care of you. I'll be with you. I'll protect you. I'm the one that's performing this covenant. I'm watching out for you. Just stay put. And the very next verse, watch what is going to happen. Oh, spiritual giant Isaac. The men of the place asked about his wife, and he said, she's my sister. For he was afraid to say she's my wife because he thought the men of the place will kill me for Rebecca because she's beautiful to behold. You get a little deja vu. This is the third time we've seen this exact thing happen in the book of Genesis. Twice with Abraham and now with his son. Right. Like father, like like the apple doesn't fall far from the tree on the sin here. And it came to pass when there had been a long time that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked through a window and saw. And behold, there was Isaac showing endearment to Rebecca, his wife. And we don't know what kind of endearment that was. I said last time the King James and the Geneva Bible have my favorite version of this. They say he was sporting with his wife. I love that. My poor wife that has to endure this. 
I'll I'll throw like really cheesy one pickup lines at her, like I'm sporting with you, babe. This poor girl. You can put her on your prayer list like that. Yeah, she got to live with Paul. <laughs> that deserves its own prayer meeting. This is a euphemism, of course. If you read the original, the Hebrew, it's, it'll say laughing. The ESV says laughing. And some other translations as well. Because the actual word there, the Hebrew word there, is laughing. There's actually a play on words. Isaac's name means laughing. So if you're reading this in the, in the Hebrew, it's like he looked out the window and saw Isaac Isaacing. Well, he wasn't laughing. It wasn't like they're cutting up jokes like, oh, man, how do you know they're married? Oh, they were joking. It's not what it's saying. It's a euphemism, right? It's a euphemism. It's a play on words. What was going on? Well, I don't know, but some sort of physical endearment that brothers and sisters don't show, right? Maybe they were kissing or, you know, he pats her on the behind. I don't know what happened. I just know I've got a sister and we don't do those things. But my wife, you know, who knows? At that point, though, the gig's up. King realizes that's not your sister. He brings him in. Verse 9, Abimelech calls Isaac and says, quite obviously, she's your wife. Why would you say she's my sister? And Isaac says to him, because I said, lest I die on her account. And Abimelech said, what is this that you've done to us? Right? You've lied to us. One of the people might have lain with your wife. In other words, because of your lie, it could have been a self-fulfilling prophecy. You think somebody's going to take this woman because she's so beautiful. Well, you lied to everybody and said she was your sister, and they might have. This pagan, wicked king is rebuking Isaac for his lack of integrity. How's the irony on that? What have you done to us? One of these people might soon have lain with your wife, and you would have brought all that guilt on us. Verse 11, so Abimelech charged all his people, saying, He who touches this man or his wife will be put to death. I would call this, when the guy who's the promised one is being rebuked for his lack of integrity by a wicked, evil, pagan king, I would call that a spiritual failure. And notice the very next verse. This is what's so incredible about this verse. Verse 12, Isaac sowed in the land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. And the Lord blessed him. You think God's blessing on your life is dependent on your performance? You need to read that. I'm going to throw something out there to you. I have more money than some people in here and less than others. I do not have more money than some people in here because I have somehow been more righteous than them. I know that sounds strange, but I'm telling you there are a lot of people who think in these terms. What they think is, if I'm blessed in my life, it's because I've been so good. I followed the rules. I've had integrity. And therefore, I have become exalted. If you think that, I know some corporate investment bankers who are very wealthy. And it is not because they've been so high and mighty and had such integrity. 
No, it's because of the different life that the Lord has done. The Lord has given some of us more than others. And he does that for a purpose. Right? If God gives you whatever it is, if it's, it's money, it's land, it's people skills, whatever it is that God's given you, he has given you not for you. He's given you those skills because you're part of a body of people. You're not just part of the church is not a corporation. It's corporeal. It's a body. If God has given me more than others, it is so that I can take that and bless others with that. Specifically, his people. Why? Because that's part of the faith journey he has me on. I've got other news for you. You can have a whole lot of money this year and not much next year. I've had that one. Both ways. I've had years where it was like, oh man, I'm hoping we can make it to the next paycheck. And other years where I felt like, <laughs> I guess <laughs> maybe this is like a part of being a teacher. You know, sometimes you're like, man, I got all kinds of money. <laughs> like compared to the rest of America, probably not, but you feel like it. You've got enough to be able to be a blessing. It's not because I was more righteous on those years and somehow I was paying for my sins on the years where I didn't have much. And don't get me wrong, I mean, I could obviously do that. I could get myself into trouble financially because I disobeyed the Lord. But I could also disobey the Lord and become very wealthy through it. Lie, cheat, steal. What I'm saying is those two things are not equally overlapping classifications. And sometimes we think that in our mind. And frankly, sometimes we think that in our mind sinfully. Okay. So Isaac has now been blessed the same year that he has a massive spiritual shortcoming. That's something. In fact, that's the point of the entire passage. I hate how scriptures are typically broken up. Usually you'll see verses 1 through 11, and then you have like a block, a cutoff, and 12 starts the next block. It shouldn't be that 12 is the high point of the first 11 verses. The whole point of this passage is, Isaac, you're not blessed because you're so good. You're not blessed because you're so wise. You're not blessed because you just are a better person than everybody else. That's the whole point of the passage. No, you're blessed because I am your God and I am looking out for you. I am your provision. I am your protection. The reason that you have what you have, the reason that you are where you are, is because I am good even when you are not. That's the point of the passage. Even when we fail him, God is still faithful. He cannot deny himself. He can't deny who he is. He's a faithful God. And he's making that point here to Isaac and now to us through the scripture. What's the point? Two things. Number one, by the way, you're going to notice these same points when you go through trials. I'm always reminded of these things when I go through trials. Here's what I'm reminded of. Number one, my frailty, my humanity, my weakness, my proclivity to fail. You will see your own humanity when you're in a trial. You'll probably see you're not quite as mature as you thought you were. You'll probably see you're not quite as spiritual as you like to think you are. 
You'll see clearly how human you are, that you are still at your core, a son of Adam. Your flesh, in the words of Dylan Darnell, my favorite line in all of music, your flesh is wrecking stuff. And it is. It's true, dude. That's, it's my favorite line. You're my hero. But you'll also see something else. And this is the point of that entire passage. In the trial, you'll see your own weakness. And you'll also see God's faithfulness. You'll see how he is holy. How he's good even when you're not. How he's a good father when you fail, when you fall down. You think I'd come over to my son if he falls down and kick him? That's right. You should have looked out for it. Watch where you're going, stupid kid. No. What are you going to do if your kid falls down and skins up their knee? Are you going to go over there and slap them for it? Stupid. No, of course not. What are you going to do? You race over there to pick them up, to love them. It's incredible. God does that to us. You fail and you go, God, I do not deserve. I don't deserve you to be my God. I don't deserve you to be blessing me, to be good to me. I don't deserve. And he's telling you, yeah, that's the point. You don't deserve it, but I love you anyway. My kids don't deserve all the things that my wife does for them. So why does she do it? Because she loves them. At some point, even with your best efforts, you will fail. You'll try not to. You'll do your level best not to. But you will. And the good news is, even when you fail, he never does. Second Timothy says this, verse 11 through 13. This is a faithful saying. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. Here's the whole, the whole point. If we are faithless... He remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. That should drive us to worship this incredible God we serve. Because I'm going to tell you right now, if, if I am the one at the top on the throne and these little creatures made of dust and dirt think so highly of themselves... I would be very tempted to pink, pink, pink. And yet our God doesn't do that. He remains faithful. He remains faithful when we fail. He remains faithful enough that we'll have victory. You don't have victory because of your own strength. You have victory because of him who's in you. What a beautiful truth to behold. What a glorious and magnanimous God we serve. That even when we fall short, even when we fail, even when we're ashamed of our own performance and efforts and character, he still remains by our side. He continues to provide for us, to protect us, to love us. It's as if he's a good groom with a beloved bride. It's as if. Now, don't get me wrong. If you hear this message and you think to yourself, well, bless God, I can just go live a life of sin and corruption and not worry about it. He'll still be faithful and unchanging, right? Right, Pastor Paul, right? If that's your heart's posture, I, I question whether you're a Christian. If that's your heart's posture, then you haven't been born again. You haven't seen him. But if you are born again, 
Hebrews 14, 16, like I said before, says God is not ashamed to be called our God. He's not ashamed when we do well, and he's not ashamed when we fail him. We're ashamed, but he's not. Even when I fail, he's not ashamed to be called my God. Even when I fail, he's not ashamed to be my father. For some of us, that's a very different experience than what we grew up with. It took me a while to understand that. In my family, sports is a very big deal. Very big deal. There are multiple Division I athletes in my family. There are multiple people who you know, had shots at like, well, I have an uncle that played in pro baseball. My dad got to the NFL Combine, to the tryouts. Like, there's a lot of sports. So in my family, when I was growing up, if you did really well, if I did well in whatever sport it was, then I was kind of, you know, kind of the king for the day. But if you failed, it's almost like you brought shame to the family. You know, you better kind of hide your head and slink around the corner. And so when you, when you grow up with that, and I know some of you have had those same kind of experiences, And a lot of times when you grow up that way, you're very tempted to see God as that way. And this passage of Scripture is telling us, no, that's not how he is. And it's a good thing it's not. So on the heels of this great failure, we see God blessing Isaac. We see him watching over and protecting Isaac. We see him emphatically showing that he's faithful even when Isaac proves to be less than. Let's continue on. Verse 12, Isaac sowed in the land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. By the way, if you don't think that's incredible, you need to buy a little seed wheat, go plant it, and see how many berries are on the top of that head of the wheat. How many stalks. Sometimes a seed can give off two or three stalks. You aren't going to get, you can get the best seed wheat out there. Trust me, we, we, you know, I I said this before. I grew up on a farm. We've got different kinds of, uh, Seed wheat that we use, the wheat that's been developed and crossbred for years and years and years to become, you know, the best that we have. Much, much better today than what we had even just a hundred years ago. And we don't get a hundredfold return. Love that. That's incredible. And there's a reason for it. The reason God gave him a hundredfold return was not just so he could sit back, count his wheat, and talk about how, you know, fat and happy he was. He did it for a very specific reason. Isaac is in the land of the Philistines, and God is going to make a message to the Philistines, and he's going to say this, I don't care how big and how bad you think you are and how powerful you think you are. I am with this one guy. And in the middle of famine, I can provide for him. How's your God? There's no water out here on the field. How did his wheat come up and give him a hundredfold harvest? The dude doesn't have a urea tank on the back of his tractor. Where'd the fertilizer come from? How did this produce this? Because God is with it. And that's what we're going to see. So the man, that would be Isaac, began to prosper. This is verse 13. And continued prospering until he became very prosperous. Love this. Like, okay. He had possessions of flocks, possessions of herds, and a great number of servants. So the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped up all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And they had filled them with dirt, or with earth. 
And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. Notice he is admitting, look, we know you're mightier than us. You, person, are mightier than us, nation. That's pretty mighty. Okay? Isaac's prosperity had prompted the envy of his neighbors. Their hatred of him was because of envy and spite. You ever experienced that? I'm sure you have. They didn't hate him because of some evil that he had done. And trust me, there was plenty of that to choose from. But that's not why they hated him. They hated him because of how blessed he was, and they weren't. Now listen, you will be tempted to do the same thing. You can do the same thing to your brothers in Christ. I see that guy. See how much money he's got. Or whatever. Nice house he's got. Nice car he's got. And you can become angry in your heart with him. Bitter in your heart. Never say a word. I'm going to talk to him at church. Oh, that guy. Never say a word. But bitterness has entered your heart because you're jealous. And the problem is not with him. The problem's within you. Really, they hate him because they're children of darkness and he's a child of the Lord. And everything he evil hates anything good. And if you've worked very long out in the, quote, real world, you've probably experienced that. Wouldn't that fun when you get a boss like that? Man, you learn new levels of sanctification. I'm really, I really mean that. You learn how to have grace under pressure. By the way, back in that day in culture, wells were a precious commodity. They're still a precious commodity. But they're even more so in that time, right? For nomadic herdsmen like Abraham and Isaac, water was life. Right? In some seasons, human and animal life could not be sustained without the water of the wells. So the wells weren't just a luxury. It's not like, oh, we've got all those wells. No, those were a necessity. And the Philistines have filled them back in. These were not easy to dig. Every well at that time was hand dug. But wells are not cheap today, but at least you don't have to dig it yourself. At that time, you would have to probably brick or rock line it. Which means you've got to dig this huge thing. Keep digging down, and you're, you're pulling it out one bucket of dirt at a time. And then when you've gotten deep enough, you start putting your bricks or your rocks around the edges, the sides. You keep digging. You keep di- one bucket of dirt. At a time. This is not going to be done. This is not an afternoon project for a couple of dudes. There's a lot of people working on this. It took a lot of time, a lot of effort, sweating, breaking their back out in the sun. And now they've just covered them up. You just filled them back in. That was the declaration of war. I mean, if you did that to the country next door, you're going to war. You're stopping up. It's, it's life for them. Look at what Isaac does. Remember, they have already said Isaac was greater and mightier than them. And now they're almost poking the bear. Hey, let's go provoke this guy and fill his wells in. You know, somebody at the Capitol, that must have been something that came up after a long night of drinking or smoking something they shouldn't have. That's a great idea, guys. Let's go fill in the wells of the most powerful man in the land. This doesn't typically work out well for you. What's Isaac do? Does he retaliate? Because I'm telling you, I would have been tempted to. Like, dude, I'm bigger than you. I have more troops than you. You stopped up my wells. You just forfeited. I'm taking over. 
Abimelech's going to die, Phicol's going to die. That would have been my thinking, right? That's the fleshly, natural way to think. And yet Isaac is very meek, not weak. What does meek mean? Meek means power under control. It does not mean weak. He's not weak. He's long-suffering, which is a very godly trait. Isaac departed from there and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. Okay, you want to stop my wells up? I'll tell you what. I'll just move away. And Isaac dug again the wells of water, which they dug in the days of Abraham, his father, because the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. And he called them by the names which his father had called them. Isaac's taken the high road when he could have taken vengeance. 19. Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found a well of running water there. Okay, they made a well. That's what that means. They dug down. They found out it's water. Hey, let's line this thing and make a well. All right. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, the water's ours. Now, this isn't an entire nation. This is just a few herdsmen. If this dude wanted to, that night, he could have mustered his servants, said, strap your swords on. These herdsmen are done. They're stealing our water. That's a big deal. But he doesn't. Again, he takes the high road. So he called the name of the well Essek, which means contention, because they had quarreled with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that one also. And so he called its name Sitna, which means opposition. And yet still, he's not taking vengeance on these people. So these pagans who are far weaker than him and are treating him with contempt, they're stealing his livelihood from him. They're literally stealing the means of life from him. And yet he still takes the high road. Most men in his circumstance would have finally gotten fed up with it. I think I probably would have been one of them. Okay, I'm not going to lie. Just wiped them out and felt very justified in doing so. It would have been justified in doing so. It's an act of war. Isaac shows true character. The Isaac that just failed is now, he's really succeeding. He's showing meekness, power under control. 22, and he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. And so he called its name Rehoboth. Because he said, for now the Lord has made room for us. Rehoboth means a roomy place. Now God's finally made room for us. We're far enough away from those other enemies that are trying to stop up or, or steal our wells that we can finally prosper. We're in a good place here. They've been harassing us. They've been contending with us without cause. Here we're in a good place. And he said, verse 22, for now the Lord has made room for us and we will be fruitful in the land. Then he went up from there to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do not fear. For I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant, Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. And he pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. Look at this. Boy, this is the one that has set me off. Then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with Ahazath, one of his friends, and Phicol, the commander of his army. And Isaac said to them, why have you come to see me since you hate me and you've sent me away from you? Well, they basically come to their good senses. 
They realize we've been poking this guy and pestering this guy and doing this bad stuff to this guy. Wait a minute. What if he gets mad and takes revenge on us? Uh, We're going to be in trouble. When the king and the commander of the army come and find you, that says something. Here's what it says. Why have you come to me since you hate me and you sent me away from you? Verse 28. But they said, we've certainly seen that the Lord is with you. That's quite an admission, isn't it? So we said, let there now be an oath between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm. Listen to this. Since we've not touched you and since we have done nothing to you but good. Uh, I... I think most of you would agree, like you'd stop him in his track. Oh, you've done nothing but good? Who was it that just filled in the wells? And we've sent you away in peace. You're now blessed of the Lord. Yeah, you're right about that. You've done nothing but good to me, huh? That's a lie. What does he do? Does he blow his top? That's it. He lets it slide. He overlooks all that they've done against him. He overlooks the lie that they just spoke to him. And he treats them as old friends. Notice the admission. They admit that they realize he's blessed by the Lord. Admit it. We know that's what's going on. Wouldn't that be a great opportunity to tell them about the Lord? If you're in this circumstance, I hope... You will see not just the trial around you, because that's what's going on. Think about where this guy's. He's just gone through a famine. Now the wells are being stopped up. Everybody's quarreling with him. In that kind of trial, can you think, hey, you know what? The Lord still has something for me to do. Did Isaac do that? We don't know. We aren't privy to those details. But he certainly acted favorable toward them, much more so than he, you know, than they deserved. We know he treated them with incredible kindness, which is exactly what Romans twelve fourteen tells us. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Yeah, that hurt me. And that's exactly how Isaac had handled it. Look at verse 30. So he made them a feast and they ate and drank. Then they arose early in the morning and swore an oath with one another. And Isaac sent them away and they departed from him in peace. He could have ended them at any time he wanted to. And he chose not to take vengeance. And I think he chose not to take vengeance for the sake of his witness. I really do. Because he failed not too long ago. Remember back in verse you know, 8, 9, 10, 11? It came to pass the same day. He sends them out. He decides we're not going to take vengeance. He could have killed them right there. They came into his camp. Three guys and even the entire... They could have brought the entire army. Isaac's men were still greater. If he wanted to take vengeance, it's for him on a platter. And he doesn't. And it came to pass the very same day that Isaac's servants came and told him about the well which they had dug. And they said to him, we have found water. So he called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. Isaac took the high road. He found out that God was working on his behalf behind the scenes. The very same day that he sends his enemies who deserved destruction, 
He sends them away in peace. He blesses them even though they don't deserve that. And he finds out that the Prince of Peace has provided water for him too. Listen to Spurgeon's commentary on this situation. Like Isaac, you too will drink from the waters of contention and hatred. You'll be brought to Rehoboth. And finally, you'll have room. Even to Beersheba, the well of the oath, or the seventh well, the well of satiety, satiates me. The place where your enemies will even seek your favor and glorify your Lord. Let me catch the last two verses and we'll close with this. The last two verses are almost an afterthought, really. They're a sad commentary about his brother Esau. 34, when Esau was 40 years old, he took his wives, Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, and Basimath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. Takes two Hittite wives. And what happens? They were a grief to Isaac and Rebekah. I understand that. As a parent, you understand that. If you saw your son or your daughter with someone that was pagan, heathen, it would be a grief to you, without a doubt. As you realize the path that they're traveling, you realize what it's going to look like ten years later. It's sad. It's a sad commentary. It's sobering to us. The reason it's kind of there as an afterthought, it's not really an afterthought, it's more like a punctuation point. While Isaac is blessed simply because he's following the Lord, not because of the works that he's done, Esau is not. And Esau's, not just Esau, but his descendants are also going to bear out. That's a curse. If you do not know Christ, you are cursed, period. And if you decide you're going to marry someone who's going to raise children to not know Christ, your children and their children after them will also bear that. If you thought about that, there are long-lasting repercussions to who you choose to marry, who you choose to be with. The Lord gave me an incredible wife. I like to tell everybody I married way up. The only person I know that married up more than my, uh, more than me, uh, is my wife. I'm kidding. That's not true. That's not true at all. No, it is very important who you marry, because your children are going to be so affected and influenced by that. So, all that to say this. Let me close. God is telling us in this passage, he's not ashamed to be your God. He's not ashamed to be my God. We will try our level best to live a life that honors and glorifies him. And even in that, there will be times where we fail. And when we fail, God is not leaving. He's staying with you. He's still your God. He's the one to run to. When you fail God, where do you need to be going? Right back to him. You don't need to be like Adam and Eve, sewing up clothing and trying to hide from him as he's walking through the garden. No, the place that you go when you fail Christ is to Christ. The place where you go when you fail Christ is to the cross. He's not ashamed to be your God. He's still there. He's still guiding you. He's still holding you. He's still being faithful. Let's pray. We thank you, God, that you are the faithful God. 
that even when we do fail, that when we come up short, when we don't do it the way it should have been done, that you're still there, that you're still our God, that you still love us, that you still care for us. That you're still working in us to do and will to your good pleasure. That your mercy is deep and rich. I ask that we would all be reminded to look to you. Not just in the, in the times where we feel like we've succeeded or we've done well. But even more so when we haven't. When we fall flat. That our eyes be turned upon you. But thank you for it, Lord. And all God's people said, Amen.